Welcome to the Purse Podcast. My name is Jana Hlistova, and we are changing the conversation for women about money and investing. I'm super excited about my guest today, Anna Poberezna. Anna is a sustainable development and technology entrepreneur. She founded ClearHub, which is reimagining resources, industrials, and infrastructure to rebuild peace, security, and prosperity. Their tagline is, from waste to value to wealth for all. Now, in this podcast interview, we talk about clean tech and why we should care. Anna explains the underlying values and principles that guide the clean tech industry, how this differs to traditional business and why it matters. We talk about investors in this space, what it's like raising money as a female founder, and how women as founders, investors, and stakeholders are reshaping this industry on a global scale. I hope you enjoy this podcast interview as much as I did. Please note that this podcast interview is for informational purposes only. We do not provide investment advice. Anna, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you on today. Hi, Yana. Thank you. And welcome everyone as well. Now, before we get into it, I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and specifically your journey to where you are today and why become an entrepreneur in emerging tech and sustainability and specifically in water innovation. Sure. Long story short, I have a nickname called following the water. It's not a joke. It's true. And the joke behind it is we know that water is the most viable resource for life. That's what brought me into their sustainability. The scarcity, the issues about the scarcity of water brought me to think is like, okay, how are we going to solve their humanity non-extinction and about actually survive, <laughs> humanity revival <laughs> and prosperity. I'm a fintech and clean tech entrepreneur, been in this space for the last 10 years, coming actually myself from construction industry and international relationships, helped to build a couple of startups, which went over 5x by now. Also, we built the first green development in Ukraine, BM certified, uh, so which gave me basically exposure not just to their digital world, but also to real assets. Also, in the past, we negotiated as a part of the infrastructure construction deals 500 to 250 mil with the water infrastructure developments. I'm looking into how to clean up our world from their toxic waste. So it's uh, effectively waste recycling in the most polluting industries, which is extractive industry, which is mining. And the bright side of the things, of course, are how to develop their eco-industrial communities or clusters or hubs, as they're called right now, or simply sustainable communities, basically revitalizing those pile of big, dirty, toxic dumps and see wherever it's possible to redevelop them in the bright, beautiful, amazing communities and possibly cities even. And how it all flows, it flows, of course, into the common narrative underneath is regenerative economy, which is much better than sustainable because we extract sometimes even five times more than Earth can produce. So obviously we have to regenerate, not just extract. That's my journey. That's really inspiring. So if you had to define clean tech in simple terms, what would you say? And it's an obvious question, but why should we care? In a nutshell, clean tech is like also digital tech or any tool. It's a tool. It's a tool or could be products, it could be services, it could be science behind those tools, which enable us to make this world a better place in a simple terms, basically clean air, clean water, clean soil, clean anything, right? The word breaks down into a radiological thing. 
So basically, it's a different type of technologies that enable us that break down usually in three verticals, energy and power, materials and chemicals, and resources and environment. That help us basically to provide sustainable technologies to clean the world and address their complexities and the problems or challenges in those three verticals. Energy power, so clean energy, clean power, materials and chemicals, so we can create the sort of secondary materials, synthetic materials and resources environment, then, well, it's cleanup pollution, or instead of instructing, try to create secondary materials from recycling and from regenerative materials production. So something along these lines, which of course, can we can go in granularity forever, but it's all a matter of understanding the real problems and addressing the real problems rather than bragging about the tech. Yeah, it's basically about cleaning up the earth, really. So anything that you can think re- rethink, reimagine, and then of course apply the right type of technologies in the imaginative way, but also a practical way, I think that comes back to the clean tech. And this market's getting a lot more focus, a lot more attention. Why is that? And what's the size of it? How big can this really get, do you think? There are different estimates. So there are estimates done by S&P Global Reports show that, in, for instance, in 2021, just private equity and venture capital invested in clean tech roughly 15 billion. Well, in this year, it's already picking up, and it's one of the top three prominent industries which investors are particularly interested, along with health tech, mental tech, and financial tech. To be honest, the forecasts vary, but they still all talk about their hundreds of billions. So, for instance, Credit Suisse estimates saying that it's going to be roughly around 100 trillion over the next 30 years. Well, the predominant money will be coming probably from private sources and from private capital, whereas, for instance, International Energy Agency, with their net zero scenario planning, did the estimates where the market will rise from 122 billion to 870 billion, so sevenfold, which is skyrocketing. So this is probably how we can see the whole universe of the clean and anything regen tech will be growing towards too. Yeah, there's lots to be done there. Now, I find it interesting, I don't know whether you've picked up on this, that women seem to be drawn to sustainability and ESG, clean tech. Why do you think that is? Well, women are empaths, and I can speak not on behalf of the generalization, but definitely about myself. And I think women nature is also very much caring, and our brain is slightly structured different from the men, and generally they're our nature. So Mother Earth. It's called mother for a reason because it gives a birth to the new birth, right? To the trees, to the nature. So similar with women, there are some similarities. Women also can be designed as mothers. So we are caring. We are actually here to produce. So that's why we have a lot of parallels with earth, with nature, with planet. And also we think multidimensionally quite easily, not just in a linear way. We see the goal and we need to achieve it, but we think straight away into the outcomes with a tendency sometimes to overthink like any human being, but we also have a big advantage to have naturally the systemic thinking and creative thinking at our fingertips, which gives us better sometimes and softer understanding of things, but also in a much more holistic way. And of course, then we would need to use that linear thinking to simplify the pathway. Otherwise, we might get lost in the rabbit holes. Absolutely. Because if you look at the stats, right, ESG, for at least a decade, women have dominated this space and are now very much in senior roles. And when you look at sustainability, I mean, the room is full 
of women. So it's great to see women leading this space. Now, I want to talk briefly about the underlying values and principles of the clean tech industry or say water innovation as you see it. Why is this important? I want to kind of frame this discussion with these underlying values and principles. You know, what do sustainable development goals have to do with it? And then how does this industry and the people in it, I guess, given that it's underpinned by these values and principles, differ from traditional business, traditional industries? You know, I would actually stick to their regenerative economies because this is what I'm driven and this is what are the really principles and fundamentals and values should be underlined, given that we started with that. Because clean tech is like any other industry. It is driven by, obviously, clean environments and zero harm and the classic ones that we know. But realistically, where we need to move as a society, we need to move to net positive, which is all about regenerative economy. Because if we just move to net zero, 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 we will have what? Zero planets? Well, we have minus planets at the current pace of time. So talking about the net positive, this is the outcome each of us as individual and collectively as a private corporation should achieve and achieve not by 2030, but actually achieve progressively year by year. Just like with the returns, right? Investors achieve net positive returns year to year. So why don't we achieve the net positive outcomes for our natural capital for humans year by year? It shouldn't be ESG driven or compliance driven. It should really be driven by strategy. And the eight underlying principles, for instance, of the regenerative economies are the following. Exactly about the same. So first of all, it's about seeking balance. Balance between what we take and what we return. Then it's in the right relationship. That is about efficiency and resilience. And interesting part about their resilience, before we were always talking about their risk minimization and mitigation, but actually it's resilience that gave us the endurance to sustain the risks and to be flexible enough to respond to those risks, but also to potentially mitigate and adapt to those. And in formal terms, everyone, we hear a lot of buzzwords around climate mitigation and adaptation, which are now incorporated in a lot of risk strategies, but effectively it all comes back to the resilience. So I think the core step right now is to move from resistance to resilience, because believe me or not, there are still some people who don't believe in climate change. Mm. And then it's all about the views of the wealth holistically. And I think it's one of the most important ones, because wealth is not how much you have in the bank account just, but it's also about their knowledge Wealth is knowledge. Wealth is health. It's all about the cultural capital. All of this that has been revived right now currently by First Nations, but also we understand it more and more. And then it's also, of course, about innovative, adaptive and responsive. Again, a lot of buzzwords overused. But if we think carefully here in a simple terms, what is adaptive? Okay, we have adaptive climate. We have a climate change and we have sustainable development goals. But the impacts of the climate change, in certain cases, somewhere it's droughts, somewhere it's floods. Right? So you cannot apply the same techniques in Middle East, what you apply in Amazon, for instance. That means adaptive. So we talk about the simple terms. So what type of technologies we need to use in Amazon and what type of the trees, for instance, we need to plant on Amazons. But the difference between green planting in Amazons and green planting in Sahara surely will be different because of the soil, air quality, and of course, humidity and the meteorology and all of the different factors. So this is where we talk about the adaptation. We have global goals, sustainable developed goals scientific-based ones. But we've got to think locally as well, no matter how much we overuse the term, and adapt to the local environments, cultures, and of course, context, landscape. And then 
connect those global goals to the local goals and outcomes and monitor them progressively, of course, and works progressively towards them. Nothing is static anymore. Of course, that comes back to owner's place in the community. So respect local. We can sit in London, we can sit in New York, we can brag about all these policies and another new initiatives and the standards. But if we don't understand the local culture, at least everything starts with acknowledgement and recognition, nothing works. Because it's about linking bottom up and top down and creating the bridge between those two. It's not either or. So that's roughly around their regenerative economy. And of course, their last but not the least is robust circulation. So that underpins the circular economy movement. Circular because reduce, reuse, recycle, and of course, anything red that I mentioned, reimagine, redesign, because everything starts with reimagining and then redesigning the systems and the products and the services. So we can actually apply those reduce, reuse, recycle. We cannot recycle all the plastic in the world right now, simply because we see the outcomes would happen because the system was designed to consume as much as most that plastic. It was promoted from 1960s as a viable, most viable. Oh, don't use normal forks, use plastic, use, 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 right? So that was a marketing campaign from the United States. And now it's like, uh uh-uh, let's ban the plastic. So what, it took us 60 years to understand that we don't need to overuse the plastic. So that's all about coming kind of over. Over is too much, right? Anything that is over is too much. And then finally, we come into this balanced conclusions. Yeah, I really like that. It's so powerful. In my mind, if I had to summarize what you've just said, it's all about business essentially recognizing the context, its environment, and not being just purely transactional or linear in its thinking. So there's always cause and effect. And if you start producing plastic, well, what are you going to do with that plastic at the end of the day? So you have to think about the whole sort of circular cycle and be very cognizant of if you're extracting, what are you putting back in? You can't just extract because it's a race to the bottom kind of thing. Exactly. So it's not race net to net zero, it's to the net bottom. You're right. Absolutely. Yeah, to the net bottom. Exactly. You're going to hit it and it's not going to be good. So how do we stop that from happening? I think the other challenge, I believe, in this industry is measuring impact. How do companies measure that net positive impact? So net positive impact, that's a very challenging way. And there's still a lot of organizations and initiatives that are trying to improve the ways. And it's never going to be perfect, but we're striving for excellence, not for the perfectionists. So there are a bunch of initiatives or standards emerging. There is Iris Network, there is SDGs, because impact is measured and translated by SDGs. Iris Network has developed their own ones, but then, of course, everyone is adapting their own approaches. And there's also a connection between the TCFD reporting, so disclosures. But again, there is no one-fits-all approach. Why? Because we're coming back to this adaptive principle, which we just heard, which is part of the good governance defined by OCD, which I didn't mention before, but also to the underlying principle for regenerative economy. So what do I mean by that? I mean, because community of a particular point of time, for instance, the most desired impact, positive impact for them is well-being, well-being and jobs. But what happens in five years, for instance, assume very positive, super positive scenario where jobs are satisfied and health improved. It means that they need something else now. They need, for instance, infrastructure development. They need high-tech clusters development and the climate in particular maybe have changed. So they need now not more clean energy. They need much more right now, for instance, water resilience. And this isn't progressive. That's what I meant. So yes, we have this umbrella or we have this blueprint roughly of impacts and where we can report. So like, all right, we are net positive, but then it's going to be a dynamic breakdown 
of the risks and impacts, which are showing their not just dynamic performance of a organization, but also a dynamic performance of a community. So we think about that as an organism, because our planet is a living organism. The same we can say about humans, but also we say we can say about the organization. So why don't we treat it all as a sort of our integrated body system where, for instance, Earth is the heart, like or their local environment, it's the heart of anything, right? Then we have local communities which present that. And then we have organizations that are functioning there as well. So we have arms, heads, heart, and all the other body organs. I'm not going to go into the biology, but that's how it should be. So we all work towards net positive goals. So everyone then have a bigger pie. You remember the donut economy. So that's exactly the way. So we have a bigger pie or bigger donut in the end of the day for all of us, rather than trying to compete for the last remaining piece. That's a very different way, right, of seeing the world. How do we make the pie bigger? If we all work together, there's just more to share rather than fighting over the last piece. It, it does come down to that. I want to switch gears a little bit, Anna, and talk about investors in this space, because as we know, your investors are crucial. And the type of investor, how they see the world, their underlying values drives what they invest in, how much they invest over what period of time. So I wonder whether you can describe, you know, based on your own experience or insight, describe the investors who are interested in sustainable finance in this space, in clean tech, for example, what do they look for, which other more traditional investors in traditional industries simply do not? There is a bright side as usual, and there is a dark side. So the clean tech journey, in the, even in the VC space, was not a smooth ride. So, and I can tell you why. So for instance, from the 2006 to 2011, before 2006, of course, there was a lot of hype, similar to what was Boom.com, right? And it's classic, it's the bubbles and the cycles and all of that. And for instance, I think MIT calculated back then that about half of 25 billion invested by VC in the clean tech between 2006 and 2011 was never recovered. So of course, it gave us all a bitter lesson, sweet, bitter memories, but bitter lesson for investors who are behind their VCs, because VCs are representatives of the LPs, right? that we've got to be more selective. The better criteria, the better filtering has to be implied rather than spray and pray. That used to be a classic approach in the VCs. So what we can see right now, especially with the current recession and inflation and post-COVID crisis and the Russia war in Ukraine and another 26 wars in the world, we finally understand that the world is fragile. The supply chains are fragile and the supply chains is not just a physical material goods. Supply chain of capital is fragile because we cannot print money infinitely because that's gonna hit the balance sheet eventually and most importantly their taxpayers so as we can see as we spoke about their living organisms what we see more and more there is basically a more stringent criteria applied for investments and not just the clean tech but overall i think there is illusion of their bright big unicorns and the wool of from the eyes is falling off However, we still can see the boys club investing in God knows what. Like we've seen recently that there is a 70 billion put into their startup in the founder who created the WeWork. So again, coming back to the white side and the dark side, we still have this bit of a nepotism, I would say, and a privileged club. But rather than that, I would focus on the positive 
as I mentioned to you, generally the environmental or climate positive technologies are one of the top three because it's not because of their out of conviction just, but it's out of necessity. We need that. And it also the real technology is just not a, some sort of a promising digital disclosure platform, which will quantify the risks of the risk of the risks, complicated models, but actually, okay, it's a very simple. What you can do in the next three years. Let's simplify it. What we're going to see, is it already out of laboratory, this engineering solution, what it can do? Can it scale to the commercial level? How much you need for that? That's the real questions. And then the second question will be, okay, do you need partners? What do you need for that? Partners, you need pilots, and how much time you need for that to prove that, and how many partners you need to prove the real values and the real outcomes. The real outcomes means how much carbon can be captured via rocks, via minerals, or via your technologies, how much clean water can be produced, how much clean energy kilowatts or gigawatts can be produced over which period of time, and what are the economic margins here. Not at the cost of the marginalized communities, but very simple, basic economic terms. Marginal revenues have to be bigger than marginal costs. And those, we now we're moving finally from this primitive macroeconomics, which has been applied over the years, shareholders, just, but actually stakeholders. So we're talking here about the total marginal revenues, net positive, have to be bigger than total marginal costs. No, not at the cost. And a simple example I can tell you, like Tesla, right? When Tesla has disclosed its impact reporting, everyone was like happy bunny first or ESG reporting. But then when the full picture, the total picture has opened up, Everyone was shocked because they deprived water aquifers in the United States. And then German community was like, oh, no, we're not going that direction. Thank you. How many electric vehicles we need to build will be built before we're going to have no water? And that's where the holistic thinking is important. And thinking not about what's going to happen today or tomorrow, but what's going to happen in the next five, 10 years. And those are outcomes and the impacts we've shown a lot in mining. And that's the question why I went into the actual natural resources, because I know if you dig a hole in one place, Surely in the other hole, downstream 50 miles even, there might be either a no water, polluted water, or something might go wrong if the first hole was not properly planned or maintained. It's obviously so much more difficult to look holistically at the impact of your investment. And I think this is why the investors in this space are quite different. So the intention here is quite different to what we see in traditional investors or traditional industries. And, and really, it's where we're going. And it makes me think of investors that invest through a gender lens as well. Your only criteria can't be, well, I want to make a 10x return. And we need investors to just put more effort in so that we start to invest in businesses that build a more sustainable, equitable world. Well, that's all comes back to our own, first of all, survival, non-extinction. And the second, of course, to ensure sustainable returns or profits. So very simple, survive and prosper. And the question will be here over which period of time, how much we need to sacrifice or trade off today in the short term so we can receive sustainable profits in the midterm and the long term whilst creating revenue generation now as well. So that's basically cultural. It's a cultural mindset, but it's also a kind of governance mindset of each particular investor but organization. But there are plenty of investor grounds like GIN network, right? Their global investment network. Then there is a Ceres network that finally, after 10 years, we can see the major shift changes 
and their water assessment and evaluating water risks, which was very much hidden and latent until we see what's going on with water across the globe. That, that represents major, major institutional investors like Actiam, Australian Super, then California State Controller, and a large, large, large institutional group of investors that are true moguls. And they will shift the paradigm. They will truly do because they put last 10 years at least to do that. So today we're going to see the outcomes and the fruits of that work. Fantastic. Now, if you had to share your own experiences with investors in terms of what you look for, deciding whether you let them invest or not, can you share some of that with us? Of course, that works both directions. So we spoke about the filtering and the criteria application or sort of part of the due diligence, right? So that works always both directions. There's no exclusivity. It's a net positive. We're talking here about the strategic alignment, strategic alignment based on the values, strategic alignment based on their desired outcomes. And of course, it's going to be based on their network support. So we feel ourselves not as a lonely rower in this canoe boat, but actually we see it as we are on the journey together or adventure in a sort of a way. Of course, we're not asking to be proactive shareholder, but we ask to be active shareholder. That's how we see it. And the more I speak to other people, because I've been approached about the investments by other clean tech startups or initiatives, and that's the same. I literally read, we don't need money. Just we need basically a strategic partners with whom we're going to walk the talk. There's a lot of research out there that says that absolutely women want to invest for market returns. That's important. Performance is key. But women in general look to invest so that it aligns with their goals and their values. What's been your experience with female investors and how do we get more female investors into this world of startup investing, investing in sustainability, in your opinion? My brief insight about that is that, yes, I do see many more women in the space, which is absolutely great. I cannot name the statistics, but I know that someone told me that a major portion of capital and wealth will be held by women, if it was not you, <laughs> Jana. Uh, <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> And for instance, the dynamics in family offices, I've seen briefly as well, that young women uh, like our age, our generation, already are in charge of their family investments. And they are paving their way to reallocate and uh, reassemble the portfolios in the much more sustainable way, driven by purposeful profits. That's how it's called, purpose and profit, but I call it purposeful profit. And the more VCs appearing with women still, Still, we compare in probably not even Pareto ratio, not 20 to 80, still much less than that. But again, it's a matter of explosion of that industry is to come in the next decade or even in the next five years. We will see some major overnight probably shifts because it sounds all like quantum. Why is that? Because it's about creating network effect. So right now, I feel we are in the stage of creating this network effect. And once that network is activated, that's going to be very, very much fast going on the fast track. We might have touched upon this when we spoke the other day. There are increasingly more and more angel networks and angel syndicates that are aimed at women. They're encouraging women to invest, to have access to capital, and they provide training to support that activity. So it's a soft landing for women who might have not ever invested before especially within the startup ecosystem. But I really like the fact that 
clean tech, ESG, sustainability is is very is something a lot of women and millennials believe in, and it's a great way to get people into investing through believing in these initiatives or themes or however you want to call it. Just like NFTs seems to be how women enter the crypto space, ESG sustainability is how a lot of women start to think about investing, whether it's retail investing or indeed in startup investing. That's crucial. Also, the points where you mentioned to me about their impact reporting, I think before importing, there is a crucial aspect for social license to operate. So coming back to the local points, and I think we haven't covered, which is very important. So the recent also movement, investor movements, which we see or the shift that their super funds are basically duty bound to consider climate social risk. That means that anyone who wouldn't want any organization who would need to extend their license to operate in a particular region, they would need to show their performance, the climate positive performance or impact positive performance. And that comes back to the whole chain, sustainable investment, sustainable operations. But before sustainable operations, we have to have sustainable license to operate. So that's all nicely coming together. Yeah, there's a lot of much more work to do than that. So here we go. Yeah, so we're just at the start of all of this, right? And it's such an important space. And I'm encouraged that, as you say, it's all kind of going to come together. This decade is all about this massive transfer of wealth to women and sustainability, ESG, even though I recognize that may be a controversial term for some, but sustainability, it's what people, women, especially, and millennials are very focused on. And so I think that the trends will converge and accelerate in this decade. Absolutely do. And women are more like water, so we will see definitely <laughs> like that. <laughs> I like that. Anna, you've shared so much. There's definitely a lot to digest. I'm sure we could talk a lot more and you can certainly come back on the show if listeners want us to dig it a little bit more. But what are your final thoughts? Any advice for women, folks who want to get into investing, angel investing specifically in this space? I would say be like water, my friends, right? So what do I mean by that? Be powerful, stay in your power, go and explore the universe, talk to their like-minded people, ask questions, do a bit of a desktop research, of course, focus on the most important topics as water, a clean water, be clean soil. Once we have clean water and clean soil, that's a good start, right? And then, of course, there are other prominent ones of the battery storage, because I don't think we need to think about just extensive energy production, but we also need to think how we're going to store it and redistribute it. So it's not about just producing more, as we said, over, over and over, consumption, over production, but it's also about how we're going to redistribute and rebalance the grids, the grids of their supply and demand and rebalance it all. So and I think women are the best in that. We're all about harmony and balance. So why not to use our most powerful skills and step into our powers to do that? That's a wonderful point to end on. Thank you, Anna. Thank you, Jana, for your time and looking forward to continue our discussions in a broader circle. Thank you for joining me today. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me online at Join the Purse or you can subscribe to our newsletter, jointhepurse.substack.com. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>